We are in the second week of a four-week series where we're thinking about bold faith. We're thinking about bold faith. Many of you would have been at the church weekend uh, a couple of weekends ago where we, the, the theme was be bold. And in, sort of, in response to that, following on from that, we're thinking about bold faith and looking at the life of Abraham. And if you were here last week, um, you will have heard the talk. If you weren't, do listen to it online. But last week, we were looking at Genesis 12 at the start of the account of Abraham. And we were hearing how God... Uh, speaks three promises to Abraham. God promises Abraham a a people, that there'll be a great nation, uh, a place, the land of Canaan, uh, and blessing, that God will bless Abraham, and through Abraham, all people on earth will be blessed. And what we saw last week was that these three promises, they run like three threads. They're like three threads that go not just through Abraham's life, But actually, there are three threads that go through the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the New Testament, and into the future and into eternity, where finally, in eternity, we see these three promises of people, place, and blessing actually totally, completely fulfilled. We see them completely fulfilled in eternity. All God's people, all who trust in Jesus from every tribe and nation of this world, in God's place, the new heaven and the new earth, experiencing all God's blessing of a place that is free from mourning and suffering and crying and pain and death. So those are the promises, amazingly key promises, back in Genesis 12. And what we're going to look at tonight is um, Genesis 15. And you might want to grab your Bibles and and pass them down the rows. (coughs) It's page uh, 15 in the Bibles. And what we're going to see as we look at Genesis 15, we're going to spot that two of these three promises, two of these promises... Um, they reappear, they resurface as we look at Genesis 15. So the promise of a people in the first half of the chapter, and then the promise of a place in the second half of chapter. And what I hope you're going to see, for those of you who like sort of a bit of structure, a bit of organization on this, as we look at Genesis 15, uh, there's the same structure in the two halves of the chapter. So first half about people, second half about place. And for both of the halves of the chapter, first of all, it starts with God reaffirming the promise. He says, here is the promise that I am promising to you, Abraham. Verse 1 and verse 7. But straight away, what happens? Abraham protests. Each time he protests, he says, hang on a moment, God. I can't believe you're promising that. There's no way that that's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. And there are huge barriers to this promise being fulfilled. So Abraham protests. And then what happens is (coughs) each time God responds. God responds, and he responds in two ways. He responds with a word and a sign each time. A word and a sign reaffirming that his promise, it will come to be fulfilled, and reaffirming that both verbally and visually. (coughs) So, um, with that little um, sort of structure in mind, we're going to keep that on the screen. Uh, I'm now going to read Genesis 15. And as I do, I want you to just follow through and just see how this structure works itself out as we go through Genesis 15. So here we go. Uh, Verse 1. After this... The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. So there's Abraham, and he takes God's promise there as a promise of a people, promise of a great nation, and we can see that because of what he protests in the next verse, verse 2. Look at what he says. <coughs> but Verse 2, but Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. In other words, what Abraham is protesting there, he's saying, God, don't be so ridiculous, promising me a great people that a whole nation is going to come from me. How can you promise that when I do not even have a child at the moment? 
And here's God's response, verse 4. First a word, verse 4, then a sign, verse 5. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Then he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Okay, then we get to verse 7. So we're moving now from the promise of the people, second half, the promise of the place. Here is God saying the promise. Verse (coughs) 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But again, Abraham protests. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? And so what's God's response? Again, we're going to see there's a sign. It's a much longer sign. It's quite a confusing sign. It's more confusing uh, than this one about the stars. We're going to come to it right now. And then there's a word. So first the sign, verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they'll be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they'll come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So that was the sign. Now, finally, here's the word reiterated. <coughs> Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and plenty of moreites. So let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we pray tonight that you would teach each one of us about bold faith. And Lord God, we pray that you wouldn't just teach us information, But we pray for each one of us that there would be transformation. Lord God, please, would you be at work now amongst us by your Spirit that you might transform us, that you might refine us, that you might make us more like Jesus. Please, Lord, would you work in us that we might know what it is to live a life of bold faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. On Friday, finally, at last, they've been trying a long time, but the Conservatives and Labour, as they were seeking some sort of compromise Brexit deal, the agreement broke down. Agreements, contracts, they can be incredibly difficult to achieve. And let's face it, even if they did manage to get agreement, then there still needs to be overall agreement between the UK and the EU, doesn't there? 
Uh, here's, um, I'm going to show you a few cartoons, just sort of the history of Brexit, okay? We won't take long on this. Um, but just um, way back in 2016 was when the referendum was. But I just wanted to see you to see what is the main point of all these um, cartoons in the papers uh, that are about Brexit. There's one main point. Here's a cartoon, first of all, from the day of the referendum in 2016. Main point, agreement is going to be difficult, going in opposite directions. Next year, 2017, um, how are we going to get agreement? It's going to be a fudge. It's going to be difficult. We need agreement, but agreement is very difficult. Next year, it's been a long time, hasn't it? Uh, 2018, 2018, next one. There we go. It we're just going round and round. Just going round and round with Brexit. Such difficulty to get agreement. And then one from earlier this year, 2019, again, agreement is very, very difficult. To get two parties to sign up to something where they are both happy with their side of the deal, that is a difficult thing. And it's not just a contract about Brexit that's complicated, which of course it is. You know, over the last months, as many of you know, we are looking and we're going to be planting a church in Vauxhall in September. But over the last months, we've been drawing up an agreement between us and the church in Vauxhall. But it took us to version 11 before we got something that we were both ready to sign. Agreement is very difficult. And so today, as we think about a life of bold faith, what it looks like for you and I to be people of bold faith, as we think about Abraham, I would love us to think about a different agreement to think about a different contract, one that actually it is the most important contract there is. The agreement between you and God. You see, last Sunday, uh, we looked as Abraham, he left his country, his people, his father's household. And we said, this is what bold faith looks like. We said, bold faith, it is looking up to God and his word and obeying it. And it is looking forwards to God and his promises and trusting them, even if those promises haven't been fulfilled, even if there are big barriers in the way of them being fulfilled. We said bold faith, it's living life, not just sort of looking in, not just deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong, but not looking in, but looking up. Looking up to God's word and obeying it, even when obeying God's word is unpopular. And it's not just living life, looking around at our circumstances in the here and now, trying to work out how can we get a good life for ourselves now as we can possibly get. It's not just about looking around at the circumstances, but it's looking forwards to God's promises and living life now in the light of the promises of eternity. So it's looking up, not in, and it's looking forwards, not around. Now, just as there are negotiations, there are deliberations about the fine print of the UK's withdrawal agreement from the EU, about what the UK contributes, what the EU contributes, about the rela- what the relationship's going to look like, so I would love us, if you like, to think about our agreement with God. What does that look like? What are the terms of the agreement? What would you say your terms of agreement are with God? If you like, not a withdrawal agreement from the EU, but instead I want you to think about a bold faith agreement, Okay. Between you and God, there's a bold faith agreement. And what does God bring to the table? What's God's contribution? And then what is your contribution? What do you bring to the table? Okay? 
So let's start um, with God. What does God bring to the table? Here are some suggestions. Hopefully you're coming up with things like this. This is what I think God brings to the table. Some of the key things that he brings to the table, he brings uh, forgiveness of my sins. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God contributes that. He forgives my sins. What else does he contribute? He gives me his spirit. If I'm in Jesus, he gives him his spirit to live in me. What else does God contribute? He adopts me into his family. I become a child of his, a son or daughter of my heavenly father. What else does God contribute? He gives me eternal life. Eternal life that starts now and goes on for eternity. Now, there's other other things as well, but those are just some of the main things you may be thinking of others that God contributes. In our uh, arrangement, our contract with God, there are all those things. Those are what God contributes, okay? (coughs) Now, what about us? What about our side? How are we going to bring things to the table in our bold faith agreement with God? What do we contribute? Here's some suggestions. Again, they may be different for you, but these are just some of the things I've thought of. Okay, I'm going to pray and read the Bible every day. In fact, I'm going to get up early to do it. What else am I going to contribute to my bold faith agreement? I am going to be bold, not just among my friends and in church. I'm actually going to be bold at work. I'm not going to be embarrassed about being a Christian. What else? In fact, I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to make sure every week I have one conversation with someone who isn't a Christian and tell them about Jesus. What else? Okay, I'm going to fast. Tim's told us on Friday of the Thy Kingdom Come, we are fasting as a church. I'm going to do that. In fact, I'm not just going to do it that day. I'm going to do it every Friday. I'm going to fast. I'm going to go on the church plant. That'd be a bold thing to do. I'm going to go on the church plant. Uh, the church weekend, Ellie Mumford talked to you about praying for physical healing for people in supermarkets. That's what I'm going to do. Every time I go to Tesco's, I am going to pray for someone that they might be physically healed. I'm going to phone Granny. I'm a nice person. I personally, I don't have a granny anymore, but it, maybe you do. Um, I'm going to phone, so there wouldn't be much point in me phoning granny. But, anyway, um, but, but I'm going to phone granny, not just once. I'm going to phone every week. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to phone her weekly. Of course, I'm going to be plastic-free and carbon-neutral. That's what I should be. That's what I'm going to be. Okay, all those different things. Those are, you can think of plenty of other ones, but those are just suggestions. The kind of things, think of yourself. What would you put in your contract with God? What would you put in your bold faith agreement? This is some of the suggestions of our contribution. Now, Genesis 15. Genesis 15, above all, what it is telling us, it is telling us what our contract, what our agreement with God, what it should look like. So what I'd love us to do is to dive in straight away to um, the bit that was quite strange. You were probably thinking, what on earth's going on here? So have a look at verse 9. Let's look at the strange bit and try and understand what is going on here. Verse 9. Verse 9 says this. So, so the Lord said to him, Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now what on earth is going on there? We may have no clue about what is going on there, but Abraham, he seems to know exactly what is going on, doesn't he? Because he, does, he knows exactly what to do with all these birds chopped up, even though God hasn't told him. And the reason that he knows what to do is because it was a well-established way back then, that is how you went about signing a contract. So today, how, when you've got a contract, when you've got, agreement, <coughs> when you've got an agreement between two people, whether it's a, a mortgage between you and the bank, whether it's a a wedding and it's the signing the wedding register between bride and groom, 
whether it is the Brexit withdrawal agreement between the UK and EU, you've got two sides, you've got an agreement, you've got it agreed, what do you do? You sign the contract. But back then, how did agreements get signed? Not by, with a pen, but the two parties would do what we read here. They would get animals, they'd chop them in half, they put them in two lines on opposite sides to each other, and then both sides to the contract, both sides would walk through the middle of these carcasses. That was, as they walked through, through the two lines of, of, of animal carcasses, that was the equivalent of signing on the dotted line. It was known, if you want the legal term, it was known as a covenant ratification ceremony. And you can read about it in all sorts of places in ancient literature. It had time and time again it happened. But just as there are problems on both sides of the Brexit agreement, so the reality is, if we're honest, there are problems on both sides of this agreement between us and God. And I'd love us just to think about them in turn. So first of all, we're going to think about this side first of all. First of all, we're going to think about the problem with us. What is the problem with us? It's very simple. All of us know that our faith is not perfect. I know I let God down. Just like Abraham, there will be times where I'll be more marked by blatant failing than by bold faith. I know I cannot keep my side of the contract. I can't keep that. All these things I've just said there, I can't keep that perfectly, let alone everything else. And that's the problem. But did you notice what happens in Genesis 15? All the animals, they get chopped in half, they get arranged opposite each other, then God appears. Look at verse 17. If you look at verse 17, there in verse 17 we have this uh, smoke, this blazing torch. And those words in the Hebrew, they're the same words as used for God's presence on Mount Sinai when Moses receives the Ten Commandments. This is God, visibly here. Now that had been pretty surprising in of itself, but you know the amazing thing is that is actually not the most surprising thing about verse 17. There's something even more surprising than God turning up. Just have a look at verse 17. It says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch, God, appeared <coughs> and passed through the pieces. So in this covenant ratification ceremony, God passes between the chopped up animal pieces. God, as it were, signs on the dotted line. God says in this moment, he says, I am committed to you, Abraham. I'm signing. But here's a surprising bit. Abraham never goes through the pieces, does he? Abraham does not sign the contract. God goes through and he doesn't then turn to Abraham and go, right, your turn, Abe. Now I've done it. Now it's your turn. You sign the contract, you keep your side of the bargain, you walk through the pieces. No, that doesn't happen. Abraham never signs the contract. You see, the problem with me and you are blatant failings, and there are many of them. It is not actually a problem to God because we contribute nothing to our contract with God. We contribute absolutely nothing. All these things that I've said here, there's nothing wrong with them, but they do not form part of our agreement with God. So we can chuck them down there. Our contribution in this agreement with God is absolutely nothing. We contribute nothing. I wonder if I, as I was reading um, Genesis 15, I wonder if you spotted in the middle of it, I reckon the most important 
verse in the entirety of the Old Testament. I had all that nice structure for you, for all those of you who like structure, but I don't know if you noticed there was actually one verse that I didn't include in the structure. Right in the middle, sandwiched in the middle of Genesis 15, between the promise of a people and the promise of a place, there was a verse that didn't fit in the structure. And this verse, I think it is the most important verse in the whole of the Old Testament, and it is um, quoted five times in the New Testament. Three times in Romans 4, once in Galatians 3, once in James 2. Have a look at it. It's verse 6. Verse 6. The most important verse, I think, in the Old Testament. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, that doesn't look particularly spectacular, does it? But this verse, it tells us on what basis Abraham had an agreement with God. It tells us how um, each one of us, how Abraham, how we can be seen by God as righteous, even though we're not. How you and I, it can be credited to us that we are righteous, that we can be in a right standing with God, that we can have a contract with him, that we can have an agreement that works. It tells us on what basis that's possible. And it tells us it's not by moral deeds, by doing lots of good things. It tells us it's not by religious observation. It tells us it's not even that our faith is our contribution to our agreement. It's not like the quantity of faith that we can work up inside of us is critical, that we have to have really high levels of faith. If we are really faith-filled, then we can contribute that to our agreement with God. No, it's not even that. It's not the quantity of our faith, merely the direction of it. That the object of our faith, of your faith, of my faith, is the Lord. Verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. So you see, the problem of us, the problem of our blatant failing, it is not actually a problem to our agreement with God because the contract still stands. So we've tackled this side. But obviously there are two sides to any agreement. There could still be a problem on this side. That's what I want us to think about now. What, is, what about the problem with God? What about the problem with God? Because surely God's patience with us will eventually run out. As we fail again and again, as we sin, as we let God down, as we can't even measure up to our own standards, let alone God's, surely eventually God's patience will fail. Well, let me explain why this covenant ratification ceremony, why it features animals being chopped up. Because you're probably thinking that is a bit weird. I mean, it'd be far you know, less messy to just use signing. So why are these animals chopped up? Well, um, I'm going to put up on the screen. Well, I'm not. They're back they are, very thankfully. Thank you. Um, uh, Jeremiah 34, verses 18 to 20. And just have a read of this. as um, It talks about a different covenant, but just gives us the idea why animals chopped up is involved. Okay? Let me read it. It says this. It says, those who violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walk between the pieces of the calf, I will deliver into the hands of their enemies who want to kill them. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals. Now, do you see what's being said in those verses? It's saying the reason for the chopped up animals 
is that it is a way, if you like, of acting out the consequences of being unfaithful to the contract. It is the consequences of breaking the contract. In other words, the whole drama of this ceremony is if to say, if I break this agreement, if I break it, if I'm unfaithful to what I've promised, well then may I be cut in half like these animals, may I be destroyed, may my body be ripped into pieces like these animals, if I break the contract. And then what happens? Well, in Genesis 15, God alone goes through the animal pieces. And he goes through the animal pieces for both of them. Abraham doesn't go. As God does that, it is as if God is saying to Abraham, he's saying, Abraham, if you're unfaithful, Abraham, if you don't keep your side of the promise, then I am going to be destroyed for you. I'm going to be destroyed in your place. God's saying to Abraham, Abraham, I will continue to bless you. I'll continue to keep my promises to you, even if it means that I have to die for you because of your unfaithfulness, because you've broken that covenant, that contract, that agreement. You've broken it, not me, but I'm going to be destroyed. I'm going to be cut up for you. And just as darkness came down on Abraham that day, so 2,000 odd years later, Darkness came down again in that very same land. And that day, God kept his promise. Because that day, God was killed. That day, God's body was ripped to pieces. God was treated like those cut-up animals. God did die for you and me on a cross in that same land. God took the consequence for you and me breaking the contract. He took the consequence for our blatant failing. He took it so that he could continue to bless us. He was cut up like those animals so that he could continue to give you and me all these things. And that's why even though you and I, even though we contribute nothing to our relationship with God, we contribute nothing, it is still okay. It's still okay because God, in his love, God contributes 100%. God contributes everything. God contributes his life, his life destroyed, his life extinguished, so that the agreement, the contract, can still stay in place. And that is the most staggering thing of all. His love for us doing that. And just in the final few minutes as I close, what I want to say, I want to explain why why this truth that we contribute absolutely nothing to our relationship with God, why this truth, more than any other truth, it is the biggest motivation why you and I will live day by day with a bold faith. This is actually the biggest motivation of why we're going to step out and we're going to be people of bold faith in our lives. Because you might think it was exactly the opposite, wouldn't you? You think, if we don't contribute anything at all, well, let's just live however we like. It doesn't matter. We don't contribute anything, so we can just chill out. But actually, I'd just love to finish to show you why this very truth, it is the main motivation why we should be those of radical, bold faith. And to do that, I want to ask you a question. It's quite a weird question, but uh, bear with me. Hopefully, you'll get it in a moment. And the question's this. Are you more likely to live a life of bold faith in your contract with your personal fitness trainer, if you happen to have one, 
Or are you more likely to live a life of bold faith in your contract with your brain surgeon? Think about the personal trainer first. Your, your relationship, your contract, your agreement with your personal trainer. If your personal trainer says to you, do 50 squats, will you obey them? Possibly. If they say to you, would you run five miles three times a week, will you do it? Maybe. If they say to you, I want you to get up at two o'clock and run a marathon before work every day, you're going to go, no way. If they say, I would like, to, like you to take steroids today, please, you're going to go, don't be ridiculous. Okay, your, your agreement with your personal fitness trainer is not going to be one of 100% bold faith. You won't just be saying, well, whatever they say, I'll do it. And whatever they promise, I'll trust. You won't be doing that. And you won't be doing that because you know that you contribute something to getting your body to look like Chris Hemsworth and your fitness to rival Mo Farah. You actually contribute something. You put in some effort. You have, something in the, you have some part in your contract. Now, what about your relationship, your contract, your agreement with your brain surgeon, if you're in need of brain surgery? If the brain surgeon says, don't eat any food for 24 hours, will you do that? Of course you will. Fine, that's what you say, I'll do it. If your brain surgeon says you need to take steroids, you'll say, fine, I'll do that. If your brain surgeon says, I need to knock you out for six hours and I need to open your skull up and investigate, you'll trust them, you'll go, okay. You will live a life of bold faith in relationship to your brain surgeon. You'll obey their words. You'll trust what they say. Because you know that you contribute absolutely nothing at all to getting your brain back in working order. You contribute 0%. It's 100% up to your brain surgeon. So do you see the difference? When it comes to your relationship with God, is your relationship with God more like the relationship with a personal fitness trainer or is it more like a relationship with a brain surgeon? Because if it's more like a relationship with a personal trainer, you think you contribute something to the relationship, then you will not be all in. You will not be living a life of bold faith. You see, if I think that I contribute some good works to my contract with God, then I can decide, well, this week I've already done enough good works. I've done enough. I've met my standard. I've contributed my bit, so I don't need to do any more. So I don't need to do any more good works. If I think I contribute some religious efforts to my relationship with God, then I can decide, well, because I've gone to church on Sunday and I've even fasted on Sunday, then I don't need to worry about God on Monday. If I think that I've contributed an exceptional amount of bold faith in one area of life, I've really stepped out in faith, I've been amazing, I've been really rather special, and God has got to bless me because I've stepped out in faith so much, I deserve to be blessed, then I can give myself a little pat on the back and I can excuse myself having very little faith in some other area of life. That's how it's going to be if we think we contribute to our relationship with God. But if I see that my relationship with God is like my relationship with my brain surgeon, that I contribute absolutely nothing at all, that he contributes absolutely everything, when I see that God alone, he walks through the chopped up animals, that he alone signs on the dotted line and he does that with his blood, then I'm going to relate to God with bold faith. In all of life, 100% of life, wanting to live 100% with bold faith, 
wanting to obey God's words, wanting to trust his promises all the time, every one of them. Because in Jesus, God contributes everything for me. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. I'd love us just to, um, as we sit, just to take a bit of time just to do some self-reflection, as it were. And I'd love to ask you this question, just to, between you and God, in your agreement with him, your relationship with him, just to say, honestly, to him, where you feel that you have retreated from living a life of bold faith? What areas of your life, what bits of your life, if you're honest, are you retreating from living a life of bold faith, obeying his word, trusting his promises? Where are you retreating? I want to suggest that in those areas that maybe God has brought to mind for you just now, those areas where you're retreating from bold faith, where you're not trusting his promises, it'll be because you think you have to contribute something in that area. Are you worried? It's because you don't trust God's wisdom. And you think you have to contribute wisdom in your life. Are you bitter? Are you envious of someone or something? It's because you don't trust God's justice. And you think that you have to contribute justice to the situation. Are you suffering from low self-esteem? It's because you don't trust God's love. His love for you and you think you have to contribute 101 reasons why you should be loved. Are you fearful of speaking of Jesus? It's because you don't trust God's power. And you think that you have to contribute by converting people to Jesus in your own power. Are you ever disobeying God's word? We all will be. It's because we don't trust that God is good and we think we can contribute a much better idea of how to live life. Just in the quietness, just in the stillness, what is God pinpointing for you this evening? Where are you retreating from bold faith?